Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. When I talk about success, again, I come from a world where you know, reaching 10,000 or 100,000 people is, you know, you get fired for mentioning that. Like, they're just too small. Think about the issues that we deal with on a daily basis, whether that's stress, anxiety, or something else that's holding us back. That is far more difficult to carry that weight on your shoulders for the rest of your life than to spend five or six hours and being uncomfortable. We live in a world now where you can literally test 5,000 variations of something and out of 5,000, know, I think 30 or 40 worked. And that's the, the power of the world that we live in today and the power of the tools that we have access to. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I wanna invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Brandon Kane. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Brandon Kane. So who is Brandon? He is a business and digital strategist for Fortune 500 companies, brands, and celebrities, He started his career at a company called Lakeshore Entertainment, where he oversaw all aspects of their interactive media strategy. And he worked on 16 films that generated $685 million. But then he went on to build applications and platforms for celebrity clients like Taylor Swift, Rihanna, Charles Barkley, Michael Strahan, and supermodel Adriana Lima, and pro skateboarder Ryan Sheckler. He also served as vice president of digital for Paramount Pictures, and he helped scale one of the largest social optimization firms in the world for Disney, Fox, and NBC. All right, so here's what I can tell you. He's a guy that will help you grow your social media following in a completely different way than perhaps you've thought of before. What I really learned from him is why do you want to grow your social media following? So for example, he grew all the celebrities, Taylor Swift, Katie Corix, all their social media following, he grew it. But then he's like, well, let me try it on the normal person like myself and see if I can get to a million followers. And he did. But here's what I learned. I learned that his why was he wanted to get speaking gigs. So he wanted to be a speaker, an international speaker that travels around the world. So he knew that he needed to have the numbers in order to do that. And so I'll cut to the uh, chase. He did grow his own platform to a million followers. So I think there's a lot here for you to apply for yourself. It's a little bit different than maybe some social media strategies you have heard in the past. And we also dug into some woo-woo shit like taking psilocybin, which terrifies me. But it was really interesting to hear why he took it and the effects of it. So we kind of bounced all over the place like a good conversation should. 
All right, so a lot of people have been asking me about private coaching. I am working with a select few number of people that are ready to make a change in their life, not thinking about it, but ready. If you fall into that category, go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com, complete an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit for each other. Okay, please enjoy this conversation I had with Brandon Kane. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know what, man? I am super excited to do this interview. What part of the world are you in today? Los Angeles. In LA. That's where we're ultimately moving to. We've got, uh, we chatted offline here a little bit. I'm going to Europe uh, for a couple of months, and then we're going to our new final resting place. I live in Atlanta now in, uh, in Los Angeles, and that'll be Manhattan Beach. So uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's a great place to call home. Yeah, I love it. I love the weather. I'm looking for an ocean. We don't have an ocean here, so I'm excited about that. So, so what we're going to do is the the show is basically broken up into uh, three parts. The first part is going to be on the science of achievement and how you do what you do. And in your world, that sort of equates to creating 1 million followers. And then we're going to talk about the art of fulfillment. And that's maybe some of the things that you do personally to be more fulfilled in your life. Uh, because we all work too damn hard and we need to uh, step into fulfillment as well. And then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Sounds great. Awesome. Okay. I think a good jumping off point would be to talk about where the passion for the film industry came from for you. Could you maybe tell us a bit of that portion of your story? Yeah. So I just remember from an early age, and, and in the beginning, I, I just saw myself watching movies and then always wanting to be the people in those movies. If it was a movie about a firefighter, I, after the movie, I wanted to become a firefighter. If it was uh, a movie about like a successful business person, I wanted to be the successful business person. And as I matured and got older, I realized, obviously, the movie was inspiring me into these different roles that I wanted to take over as, as an individual and grow into. And I finally realized, well, maybe it's just the movie that, that I really love and the movie that I really enjoy. And once I came to that realization, that's where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this. I, I want to see what it takes to, to get into the industry and see if it was actually possible. And then from there in high school, I d- took my first film class and kind of started off from there. So what was it specifically, other than sort of like wanting to step into the character's shoes, what was it specifically about it? So, you know, like I live in Atlanta now and there's a ton of filming all around me. And it's, you know, I have to say that the experience of it is is really, I don't know, maybe intoxicating is the word. It just seems like such a cool life because they're, they're filming you know, on all the streets around us. And I walk down the streets and, you know, I, first of all, I can't believe the amount of production that is associated with creating a movie. I mean, they shut off four blocks here. I mean, there's, you know, 10 trailers and all kinds of stuff, but there's something very intoxicating when I see it. What was it for you? Was it, was it your desire to have the end product of the film or was it to kind of like get lost in the creation of it or where was it for you? For me, it was really the end product. That that's where I fell in love with it is just consuming the content and, and that escapism that it provides you. I will say, for me specifically, it, the industry seems really intoxicating, like you said, and sexy and exciting. But when you get into it, it's pretty boring. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've been on a movie set, but it's like watching paint dry. It's like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. I mean, especially on film. And also it goes for television today because a lot of the television is shot almost in the same way that films are shot, especially when you're talking about like the Netflix and Amazon and HBO series. But there's just, you'll set up for a shot and it'll take like two or three hours to set up for a shot that takes 15 seconds. For some people, they love being on set. But for me, if I'm on set for more than 15 or 20 minutes, I just get start, I start getting bored. So it's not as sexy and exciting as, as most people would, would think or anticipate. 
So at the end of it, what you have is a product of 15 seconds here, 15 seconds there. That's amazing because it's all put together well, but actually going through it can be sort of, you know, nauseatingly long. So I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I completely, uh, I completely get that. All right. So if we fast forward a bit, you set your sales on Los Angeles to become a producer. Can you describe what a producer does? Because I think that's often misunderstood. It is because when you look at a movie, there's so many different types of producers and in the, in the past and still a little bit today, they will give credit to people as a producer or associate producer or executive producer that doesn't necessarily have a meaningful role in the film. So it, it depends on the film. Like typically when you think about a producer, it's somebody that puts the entire a project together. It's almost like the CEO of the company. So a, a real producer that's kind of controlling the film, they'll find the script, they'll help develop the script, they'll put together the cast, they'll put together the financing, they'll hire the directors, uh, they'll hire the on-set producers, and they'll basically make the entire film come to life. But obviously, when you see a film, there's sometimes... 10, 15, 25 producers. And, you know, the other producers could be first off onset producers. So there's people that make the production run on a daily basis. So they control the set, they manage the set, they make things get, make things uh, happen on a daily basis. Then there's an independent films. You'll have people that are given producer titles that just invested in the film. So they may have just provided the financing to it but they didn't really have any other role in that. And then there's other people that are just contributing to the film in a meaningful way that they want to give them an associate producer credit or an executive producer credit because they did do a lot of work on the film. They didn't necessarily make everything happen as like the, the one to three producers that are really the main driving forces behind the film. But that's kind of the, the breakdown is sometimes people are given you know, producer credits uh, for political reasons in the industry. It's really interesting. There are two guys uh, you may or may not know that I am obsessed with their work. Um, I just find them incredibly interesting. The first is a guy named Jerry Weintraub. Um, And then the other one is a guy named Erwin Winkler. Both those names ring a bell to you? Yep. They're very successful producers. Those guys, for me, you know, they're, well, obviously, uh, Jerry passed last year or two years ago or something, and Erwin Winkler is still going, and and, uh, Jerry wrote a book called uh, When I'm Done Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead, which was like, (laughs) which was like an amazing book. And what I didn't realize about the kind of work that a producer does is they're, you know, you think a producer, I think we often confuse what a director is and what a producer is as layman. And you know, when I hear these stories of how, you know, he went from producing Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley to Ocean's Eleven. So the breadth of what you guys do can really be anything. Yeah. It can. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned those two producers because they, they really come from the old school Hollywood where the producers really took control of everything and made it come to life. And it's interesting. One of my mentors and the, you know, the person that gave me a start in the industry uh, was a very successful corporate real estate person. And his friends got into the movie industry and he's like, listen, you should come to Hollywood and produce movies because it's the same as real estate. You're putting all these pieces together and you know, you're structuring the financing, making sure that it's a sound financial investment, which most producers do not do. And he was able to make that that transition successfully. He won a, an Academy Award for Million Dollar Baby and has built a very successful career as a producer. So you will see producers come from different facets of either the entertainment industry or different aspects of business that can come in and create films that that are successful both financially and creatively. So it is kind of interesting to see the background of a lot of these people and and where they got their initial start. Because for most of them, it's not starting off in producing movies. 
Now, you mentioned Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby, I believe, is at the point in your life where you landed the job with Lakeshore Entertainment. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So you land this job with Lakeshore. And uh, for people that don't know who that company is, they're best known for things like uh, the Hurt Locker, Napoleon Dynamite, Tropic Thunder. I mean, it's a ton of stuff. But you did something very different there. You pioneered one of the first ever influencer campaigns. And there's a million questions I can ask you. So I really struggled with where I want to go down first. But I think to serve the audience best, probably the best question would be, what were some of the tricks or approaches that you found worked for you in that environment when you were sort of creating this influencer campaign that really didn't exist at the time? Yeah. So just to give some context is when I initially went to film school to, to pursue that business side of film, I quickly realized they don't teach you anything about business there. And I'm an experiential learner. So I decided the best way to learn about business is actually create your own. So while I was going to college, I started a few internet companies really just to learn and experiment. And then when I moved to LA to pursue a career in film, it's when the entertainment industry started to reawaken the digital after the dot-com bust. And I've basically built my entire life and career about how you can provide unique value, how you can stand out and be different. So I just saw that there was a lot of high-profile executives, directors, actors, producers. They were asking, like, how do we use social media? How do we use technology? How do we use this digital medium to, to promote our movies, to syndicate our brands? And one of the interesting aspects of the movie industry that's, that's pretty backwards compared to any other industry out there is that you're literally tasked with building a brand in less than three months, unless you're promoting the Avengers or some huge sequel. And it's one of the reasons they do so many sequels. You're typically asked to create a brand in less than a few months that reaches hundreds of millions of people so that you can offset the overall investment of it. So when I saw this unique opportunity that there was a lot of people asking about this new medium, I basically leveraged the experience in creating those internet companies to provide this unique value. And at the time, I was really fascinated with, you know, at the time, MySpace and YouTube were the big players. And I just saw that there was, and again, with Lakeshore, their films were ranging like 15 to like $60 million budgets, which sounds like a big, big chunk, but for the movie industry, it's not that big. It's kind of like mid tier. And their marketing budgets were anywhere from like 15 to 40 million. Like, and to put that into context, like Avengers, their production budget, I think, was around 200 million, and they spent about 150 million promoting that movie. So, we were often tasked with how do we create these brands overnight and how do we do it in the most cost efficient way possible? And at the time, digital and social media had less than like 0.5% of the budget, if that. So I was always tasked with, well, how do we reach the most amount of people possible with the least amount of budget? And I just saw that, and it wasn't even, they weren't even called influencers at the time. I just saw that there's people on YouTube that were, had huge accounts. And I'm like, well, why can't we tap into them? Like they, they're, they're reaching millions of people. And most people were not really paying attention. So I just do what I do. And I just made a list of the top 100 YouTube stars at the time or YouTubers. And at the time, they didn't have a term YouTuber or account creator. They were just people that had YouTube accounts with lots of people. And I messaged them and I simply said, Hey, do you want to interview a movie star? There was no offer other than that. And I think I got like four or five responses, which is typical for cold outreach, but they were from big people. Like there, there's, you know, one or two of them that are still some of the biggest YouTubers out today. And I just went in with that simple value proposition to say, hey, do you want to interact with a, a movie star, which they had never been approached by anybody from the movie studios. And that was you know, extremely successful. And again, the, the inspiration behind this, how do we tap into to their audience and give them a unique experience and opportunity that makes it fun and interesting for them? Who were some of the people that you reached out to at that time? And you know, when you're, whenever you're creating something new, there's, there's things that work and there's things that don't work. So maybe you can kind of talk about some of the things that you did at that time that was like, when I did this, it was amazing, but I tried this and I don't recommend it. 
So we were pretty successful when it came to the actual promotion side of it. So we worked with like a YouTuber named Ryan Haiga, who's still really big today. There was another YouTuber that had went on to, to be one of the founders of Maker Studio, which was a multi-channel network that was acquired by Disney for a billion dollars. There was another YouTuber who's, I don't even think he produces videos anymore, but he had the, the most viewed video of all time at that t- point in time was the evolution of dance. Mm, I remember that guy. Yeah. So we did, we did something with him and those were all successful. I think the interesting thing was when Fox got acquired or Fox acquired MySpace, and I was still working at Lakeshore at the time I became fascinated with, well, if they're going to spend, I think it was like $680 million or something like that, for the acquisition price for this platform, how are they going to monetize it? Cause I knew that their monetization was coming from bottom basement CPMs. And I just came up with an idea to build a technology platform to actually monetize the, the most value form of, of brand interaction that was happening on the platform, which was people were taking movie trailers, music videos, posters, like Nike posters, putting it on their MySpace profile to essentially decorate it with it. And to me, I saw that as the most valuable form of advertising, which was peer-to-peer sharing which essentially was influencer marketing. And I didn't know it was influencer marketing at the time because there wasn't a term for it. So I had built a technology platform where people could take that same uh, content, that movie trailer, that music video, that poster, put it on their MySpace profile and get paid each time somebody interacted with it. And so it was essentially the first ever technology for influencer marketing and basically took it around to a different different key players and and corporations and and brands and eventually ended up licensing it to Viacom and MTV. And we created several tests with it and it was successful. It was like our click-through rate was insane. It was the click-through rate. I think it was like between five to to 15% comparable to what we were seeing in the traditional banner ads, which was less than like 0.5% if you're lucky. And where it fell short, though, at the time was MySpace wasn't really there from a scale perspective. And it was just a little too early for, for that type of platform because we were dealing typically with MySpace profiles that weren't driving a significant amount of traffic to each other. Shareability and virality wasn't built into the platform just yet. So we were too early with that platform. And you know, obviously today... Influencer marketing, I think, is estimated next year to do about fifteen billion a year. But so we were on the right path. It just became it was just too early with the concept and and the technology and the approach. So this was site canvas, is that right? No, this was called my paid ads at the time. And again, that was a, a joint venture partnership that we created. Well, I basically created a prototype. The investor that I had was the president of Lakeshore. So I was building it while I was working at Lakeshore, basically building it at nights. We created a prototype and, you know, created this joint venture with NTV Viacom and created several iterations. One of which was for the partnership they had with Vice when Vice first started to produce video content. Well, you decided that what you were going to do is take those principles and make sure that they worked outside of celebrities, which is sort of like what led to the creation of your book. Can you walk me through how you were able to apply what you learned with celebrities to create your own million followers? So really the inspiration behind it, as you said, is I spent so much time working with huge corporations, brands, and celebrities but sometimes I would get questions of, well, that's great that you can work with a Taylor Swift or an MTV, but what about an individual? It's like some people think it's just so easy just because you're you're working on a movie or you're working with a musician. They don't realize it's just as difficult, but I can understand that perspective. And that's where I wanted to see what was possible and, and create an experiment to, to show, to truly show the power of where social media had extended to. And the system that I developed, it's not like I just woke up one day and just decided I'm going to generate a million followers in 30 days. I I took about three and a half years to develop the system of testing methodologies and predictive calculations to be able to pull it off. And I first started out of a need uh, because I had, at the time I was working on a a paid media optimization company that was essentially helping Fortune 100 and 500 companies 
optimize their advertising campaigns on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. And, you know, we built that business up to about 80 to a hundred million dollars a year in paid spend manage in less than four years. But there was a reoccurring theme that kept happening. We would have the biggest brands in the world come to us and say, here's a piece of creative. We just invested hundreds of thousands of dollars on, and we want to spend another million dollars promoting it to a specific audience. Let's just say it's females, 35 to 50 years old in the U S and when you ask them, well, how do you know that this piece of creative is going to resonate with this audience, the tune of risking all this money, nine times out of 10, they did not have the analytics or data to support that decision. And this was a reoccurring theme that I saw over and over again. And sure, if you're a huge Fortune 100 company, you can make a few bets and, and lose out, but it's not sustainable. And then what about the rest of us? Like The rest of us don't have that type of budget to, to really allocate and, and risk. So I knew there had to be a better way. So I, I left working in that company and started building these set of testing methodologies to be able to test content at scale and really understand what content themes, formats, and stories uh, really resonate with audiences to get them to perform a specific action so that you can you don't have to invest too far in any specific direction until you know it's working. So I spent, you know, again, three, about three, three and a half years building it. And I started with going back to the brands and corporations and testing and seeing success with that. And then I went back to working with some athletes and celebrities. And I worked with a journalist named Katie Couric on the plat on this kind of system when she went from traditional television to a deal with Yahoo and was struggling to get her content seen and distributed through Yahoo and spent about two years helping her reverse engineer the art of the interview on social and digital platforms and really applied and honed this methodology to the tune of doing about 220 interviews with her, uh, ranging from like a Chance the Rapper to a DJ Khalid to a Joe Biden to a Je Jessica Chastain all across the board. And through those 220 interviews, I tested about 75,000 variations of content so I could really you know, hone in on how to structure testing at scale and then that's where I decided, I was like, okay, that's great. I've done all this work for these top high-profile people. Now, let me see what's possible for people starting from scratch, people starting from zero. And again, I'm an experiential learner. I'm not somebody that just likes to talk about theory. I like to actually see what's possible. And when thinking about who would be the perfect person to run the experiment on, I thought, why not myself? You know, I'm not on any television or film show. I'm not famous. I'm not a musician or a rock star. And I was definitely starting from zero. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to run this experiment on myself and, and see what's possible. And that's where over the course of 30 days, I ended up testing 5,000 variations of content on myself and proceeded to, to end up with a million followers in a hundred different countries. And that was on the Facebook platform. And the past seven months, I've been developing the system for Instagram and I'll be hitting a million followers this weekend and we've gotten it to scale where I can do about 150,000 to 175,000 followers a month, depending on the month. All right. So there's a lot there. Basically everybody listening is saying, all right, I I'm, I'm down. He's got the credibility. He's, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe a lot of what you describe with CPMs, et cetera, is way over their head. What are the baby steps that they can begin immediately and maybe even talk about what not to do? So if somebody wants to duplicate what you did and maybe some of this is just way over their head and they're like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Where do they begin? So the first place to begin, and I work with, with clients in, in a strategy day or strategy sessions, is you've got to understand why you're doing it. So many people go into this and they don't understand the full vision of why they're generating a social following, how they're going to leverage and maximize it. Because the bottom line is it takes a lot of time, effort, and resources to be successful at it. And I'm not just talk talking about the followers. The followers are pretty easy to generate with the system. But like to me, like I generated a million followers in 30 days and I still work on it every day. I'm still testing, optimizing, creating content. So first understanding, why are you doing it? Where is your return on investment going to come from? And that doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be a direct attribution to sales. So for for example, for me, I I had a vision going into this of why I was doing it to leverage it, to get a literary agent, to get a publishing deal, to speak around the world, to get on, on major press outlets. So and then from there the revenue came from you know just building that brand and attracting a lot of people to me. 
And I think just so many people get into this and not really understanding the full vision of why they're doing it and how they're going to maximize the potential of it. And that's where people end up failing because they get into it. They see how much time or how much resources they have to, to allocate towards it, to build a team, to be successful. And when I talk about success, again, I come from a world where you know, reaching 10,000 or hundred thousand people is, you know, you get fired for mentioning that like it's just too small. So when I'm talking about success in the context of the work that I do, it's how do you reach millions of people and how do you do it on a larger scale? So that's where I really start with people. And also I think a mistake people make is like you talk about an e-commerce company or which I advise several of those or people that are just trying to drive purchase, you know, purchases or conversions. Like don't start with followers, start with campaigns that are going to drive growth and drive scale generate that profit. And then you can reinvest that profit through followers. And oftentimes you will see a correlation between the level of paid advertising and marketing that you do to follower growth. It's not a direct correlation, but you will see an increase in that. But that's where I make the distinction is based upon the why, are you trying to use social media as a leverage point for a larger brand vision? Or are you trying to use social media to drive transactions and sales? And based upon either one of those directions, then I'll craft a specific strategy to them. So that's one mistake that I see people make in, in kind of a starting point. All right. So you've got a book now that has been really, really uh, tearing up the charts, doing really, really well. In that book, if people go out and buy it, will they have the step-by-step that they need to be able to duplicate your success? Yeah, I don't hold anything back in it. Like we provide a step-by-step guide of how I generated a million followers, but that's probably like 30% of the book. I also went out and interviewed my partners and some of the best growth experts in, in the digital space because I'm a firm believer in presenting multiple options. And what, the one thing that I've learned is there's multiple ways to achieve success in social and digital. And I want me to make sure that people choose the right approach for them. One of the things I, I really don't like about the space is you'll get a lot of experts or agencies that claim that you have to, to grow in a specific way and they only present that option because that's the only way they know how to grow. And I take the reverse side because I work as a strategist and an innovation. So I'm constantly coming up with new ways to achieve success. And I always want to make sure that the people that I work with are getting the right strategy that meets their goals and can reach it in the, the most cost-efficient way. All right. We're going to flip to the second half of our show and we're going to talk about the art of fulfillment. And it's basically, what are things that you're doing personally to improve areas outside of your business? So I'm going to ask you some questions. These are going to be like like random weird. You're going to be like, why is he asking me these questions? Just roll with it. So what is a new behavior or belief in the last fill in the blank number of years or months that has significantly improved the quality of your life? Well, if you want to get into weird uh, answers to weird, uh, to weird questions, to I, weird, think yeah. that, I think that, you know, interestingly enough, I think that one of the areas, you know, cause I'm a huge believer in self-improvement and, and mindset and becoming the, the best human possible for, not just yourself, but the people around you. So I've tried everything and I, you know, I've been a big meditator for, for 10 years, been in therapy and all of that. But interestingly enough, one of the areas that I've had the greatest impact just in, in the last few months is doing psychedelic therapy sessions with psilocybin. And I'm not a drug user at all. Like I've been scared of it. Anything that's mind altering. But to me, that experience has been truly amazing and, and life-changing in, in so many ways because for me it it's really able to change the way that you perceive things and and wire your brain in different ways because as we all know the way that we perceive the world a lot of times is dictated by our past experiences and especially from childhood so you'll have a lot of behavioral patterns and and ways that you perceive the world that are dictated by experiences that happen from like age one to 10, which seems kind of crazy uh, that you would still be perceiving the world in similar ways and taking action and making decisions based on things that, that, that happened such a long time ago. 
So for me, that experience has, has really been uh, life-changing in my ability to tap into the subconscious on a deeper level and rewire my brain and rewire the way that I perceive certain situations. I mean, this is a rabbit hole, right? We can go down um, 20,000 different roads here. I have so many questions on it. I don't want to make it a, you know, a show about this, but I, I do think it's worth it to spend a little bit of time here. You know, the, the guy that is sort of like bringing this into the world right now, at least, at least from my perspective, is Tim Ferriss. So is Aubrey Marcus. And so is, you know, sort of a more famous, not famous, but a, a, a more different kind of journalist, let's say, is Michael Pollan. And they're all like, these are all super credible people. And I can, the list goes on and on. So it's not, you know, it's not weird stuff anymore. It, it like makes sense. Now it's, now for me, it's, do I have the balls to do it? To be perfectly honest with you, I, uh, I'm like you, I've never done any drugs. I've smoked pot twice in my life. I didn't drink alcohol until I was 30. And now I'm like, you know, two glasses of wine in a night. So I don't have any experience recreationally with it. And the thought of taking psilocybin, ayahuasca, just terrifies me feeling like I'm going to lose control. I'm going to get sick. Talk to that a little bit. Did you have any of those fears? And what was it like when you did it? I had the same thoughts and same experience as you. I didn't do anything recreationally. I started drinking not as late as you, but I think like 23, 24 mm -hmm. and had the same fears. And the fears were the same as yours of I'm scared of letting go and scared of control. And that, you know, funny enough, that was the, you know, the first experience that I had is the first hour I had a panic attack because it was, once you take it, you can't turn it off. But what right. I realized was that is the experience that I needed to have is like, I needed to be able to let go and surrender to be able to go to a place to work on things that I needed to work on. And to me, the interesting thing, and the only way that I will that I was willing to do it. And the only way I will do it going into the future is first doing it in a safe environment with a medical professional. And what I've learned through the process, it's very intention-based. Like if you go in with clear intentions and that's the way that I do it is you go through an intention setting session with the person you're doing with and get very clear about the things that you want to work on, things you want to improve. But it is, it is just crazy. And I don't know if it's the subconscious or I'm, I'm assuming it's the subconscious, but there's a part of you that once you set that intention and you take that, that drug, it takes you exactly where you need to go. And sometimes it's not a place that you want to go, but it'll take you exactly where you need to go and you can't fight it. You have to let go, but it is so healing and it is so freeing, but it can be scary. Like it, sometimes I still get that panic initially when you take it because you know, I'm like you is you, you want to control everything, but that is something that, you know, for me, I needed to work on and I've improved significantly through that process. Did you get sick? No. Like nauseous, throw up, anything like that? No, that's, that's primarily a symptom of ayahuasca. And I did psilocybin that you don't really get sick with that, or at least for me and from the research that I've done, I think it's more ayahuasca that, that gets that nauseous and sick feeling. Okay. And so you didn't have any sickness other than the mental stuff that you had to sort of like overcome, which is, which is really why you took it in the first place. Exactly. Um, so I, yeah, I get that. How long does, uh, I'm going to date myself here. Uh, how long does the, tr does the trip last? So the whole experience I would say is probably about five or six hours. Uh, and oh, then from, wow, long time. Yeah. It doesn't like, but you lose sense of time and for me, the experience is like the first hour is the most intense and then the rest of it, you know, it kind of settles in and you get into like this really deep, deep meditation place with it. And then after the experience, you feel the, the effects for probably the next like 10 or 12 hours, but you feel really good and you're not like really tripping or anything or hallucinating, but you do still feel some effect of it for, for like, I would say you know, six to 10 hours after that, but it, it, it's a really good feeling. Do you have a full memory of everything or is there like an amnesia I do. effect? 
No, I do. I, I don't know if it's different for everybody else because the person that I do it with is there to, to take down notes of anything that you're experiencing. So you can kind of just talk to that person and they can jot out notes. But for me, I remember everything. What's the setting like? Are you in, you know, like, is it like a, uh, an office setting or like, what's that like? Yeah. So the person that I do it with is in a house setting and you, you're kind of laying down on a comfortable, uh, like makeshift bed of pillows. Uh, you wear an eye mask through the entire time and you know, they have a curated playlist of music that helps you along with the journey. Uh, because essentially it just got decrim- decriminalized in, in Denver. And it's, I think it's going to be on the ballot in 2020 for California, but technically it's still illegal. So there's not, I mean, there's like John Hopkins university is doing clinical trials. It's, it's becoming increasingly uh, accepted in the, the medical community. I mean, it was accepted in the medical community community back in the thirties and forties, but the, go- the government decided to criminalize it for various reasons, but it's not like you go into it like a typical doctor's office and do it just yet. I think it's right around the corner, but not today. Okay. So you're in somebody's house, you've got the headphones on and they're staying with you through the period of five or six hours. Yeah. We don't do headphones. We just, she does uh, music on speakers so that you can communicate with Uh, the person, but you do wear an eye mask throughout the entire time. So it's a very internal process. How long does it take from the moment that you take it to you till you start feeling the effects of it? And how long does it take until like the peak effects start to come in? That's a good question. Again, a lot of this, you lose a sense of time. I would say if I had to guess, it's probably like 15 to 20 minutes until you start seeing the, the effect. And like, again, the peak of it is, is within the first hour and that's where it's the most intense. And then it kind of, uh, settles in a little bit. Well, I got to tell you, man, I'm proud of you because I don't have the balls right now. I just don't. I the the thought of doing it is so terrifying to me. And it's you're right, it's a control issue, which is the reason why I need to do it. Um, like giving up that level of control just absolutely panics me. So, um, you know, God's yeah, listen, not it's scary. It, it it is scary, and it, but I, I think there's there's a few things with that. First off, the person I work with says that if you're scared of it, it means you respect it. And the other aspect of it is, are you willing to be scared shitless for an hour to have an impact for the rest of your life? And to me, it's like, no matter how scary it is, you're not going to die. You, you're going to get through it. I, I mean, the worst part of it is maybe 60 minutes, but let's just say the worst part of it is five or six hours. Are you willing to suffer for five or six hours? And you're not going to suffer. It's not that bad. But are you willing to go through that experience to have a, a, a profound and tremendous impact on the rest of your life? And I think we can all attest that we've been in experiences that are probably far worse. And if you think about the issues that we deal with on a daily basis, whether that's stress, anxiety, or something else that's holding us back, that is far more difficult to carry that weight on your shoulders for the rest of your life than to spend five or six hours and being uncomfortable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the up, the upside for sure is worth it. It's just, it's, it's just getting, getting the cojones to take the, uh, to take the action. How often do you do it? So I've only done it twice. I'm about to do another one in about two weeks. So they, in the clinical trials at John Hopkins, the way that they're doing it is they're doing three sessions spread out four weeks at a time. But that's kind of just up to the individual. Like it's just the experience that you want to have is some people just do it once and they're done. For me, I think I'm always going to have it as a part of my life. I mean, I'm probably, depending on kind of where I'm at, I may do it once a year or once every two years. Just, I think it's just a tremendous and valuable tool on so many levels. Uh, but that's kind of where I'm at with it right now. I can ask you a million questions on this. We're going to hit the rapid fire round of the show. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Thinking outside the box and innovation, I kind of see things differently than everybody else. And that's a lot of the work that I do in my professional life and then also for my personal life. I, you know, I give a lot of guidance to close friends in that capacity as well. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? 
It's a great question. Prior to the the psychedelic experience is, you know, the control factor. I think one of the areas that I'm still working on is, is trusting and letting go. And, you know, failure is always, you know, something that, that worries me and scares me, which is interesting because I'm, I live in a world where I'm so uh, entrenched in testing and learning and trying things and failing and learning from those things. But I would say that that's probably, you know, the, the fears that, that I've had in the past and they're, they're still there, but they're getting much better with all the, the work that I'm doing on myself. What keeps you up at night? You know, it's the creative ideas that keep me up at night. And sometimes it's very difficult to shut off my brain and that's what uh, keeps me up at night. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and come up with ideas and have to kind of get to work on it because I can't get back to sleep. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? That's a great question. Uh, I think that, you know, the interesting thing is, especially on what I, and the reason I kind of shifted uh, how I talk about this and, and the mindset is people don't ask me why I generated a million followers. They just see that I generated a million followers and they want to figure out how to do it. But I think that there's more value in asking people why they do things rather than how they do things. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. You you actually led with that, which made me think, oh, okay, well, great. That he wanted to go learn how to speak and do keynotes or or get bookings for keynotes, et cetera. And uh, you just leverage the platform. That makes actually perfect sense. What book have you reread the most? How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's such a good one. What's uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Movies are still my guilty pleasure. I love movies and you know just great entertainment. What one question would you like to ask me? I, well, I guess the question is why, because that's you know what fascinates me is why do the podcast? You know why reach so many people? What 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 really fuels and drives you? The reason why I do the podcast is I am surrounded by um, a bunch of entrepreneurs that you know, because I know you've been on a few of uh, my friends' podcasts. They are very, very successful. They make a lot of money and they love what they do. And because they love what they do, they view what they do as not work. And when they view it as not work, they put it in a container of something that they can continue to do all the time because it's not work. And what happens is there's so many things that's going on in their lives around them that they're largely ignoring because they don't view what they do as work and I love it and it fills me up and it gives me a lot of things. But there's so much in the world that they're not getting to. And they're not leading a truly balanced, we'll put that word in quotes, or fulfilling life because all they do is work. So the reason why I do this podcast is to talk about things like psilocybin with you know a best-selling author and to talk about struggles that you know people have in doing what they're doing because i think that we are so focused as type a entrepreneurs on success and um, growing our business that we are largely ignoring this one time that we have on this planet what are the things that we want to be doing with our life that is outside of work. Because it is in getting to those things outside of work that makes you come back to your work more refreshed. For example, we talked a little bit about this group that I'm taking uh, to Monaco this weekend, and I've got a bunch of experiences for them. I know that when I get them away from their iPhone and away from banging their head against their computer and forcing out the next book or forcing out the next blog or podcast or whatever it is, that they're going to gain new perspective, new ideas, because they're in a different environment and they're going to learn new things. So I'm driven by opening them up to things that they didn't even know that they need to be opened up to. That's beautiful. Long, ra- long ramble, but that makes sense? Yeah, no, that's that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you got it, brother. Well, listen, we are out of time, but uh, this went in a very different direction than I thought it was going to go in. And that's what I love about doing this because I really feel like I got a chance to kind of like scratch the surface a little bit deeper um, in some areas. And and maybe if you're open to it, we can do a part two and uh, talk about some of the areas outside of uh, 1 million followers, because I think you have a lot 
to say about the area of uh, fulfillment and personal growth, et cetera, because it's not, you know, look, your book is successful, but it's successful because of who you are. So, so thank you for taking the time. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? I mean, I would just say that if you want to get into this space, and I think that the, the people that are very successful already have this kind of mentality, but just be testing, learning, and and just don't give up. Don't get frustrated by the things that don't work. See it as an opportunity to to learn. And I think it's talked about a lot about in business, but when you talk about social and digital growth, you do it on a whole different scale. And you'll take advantage of that. We live in a world now where you can literally, like for me, test 5,000 variations of something and out of 5,000, know, I think 30 or 40 worked. And that's the, the power of the world that we live in today and the power of the tools that we have access to. So really kind of adopt that, that mentality and seeing, seeing it, you know, these learning experiences and these mini failures, if you, if you even want to call it that, as really a blessing for you know kind of the world that we live in and the opportunities that we've we've been given that's perfect i'm going to leave it right there thank you again brandon for taking the time yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it all right thanks for listening if you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.